Hi everyone, welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Long time no podcast, I apologize for the delay. I got really busy and then I kept forgetting to film an episode, but now I'm finally getting around to it and I'm going to try to be more on it with my timing. But anyways, I apologize for that. Um, If the audio is bad in this clip and some of the other podcasts that I have, just know that I often am walking while I'm recording these and it's because I have trouble sitting still. And indoors, if I sit still for too long, I usually become fixated on things on my laptop, and then I don't get to go outside until it's dark, and I hate that. So I usually film it when I'm on the go and walking. Right now I'm walking a horse back to the field to put her away, and yeah, it's just easier for me to film them this way, no matter how stupid that might sound. But yeah, that's kind of why the audio is the way it is. I'm working on getting like a mic and actually becoming a legitimate podcaster, but you know, I'm not very organized, so who knows when that'll actually happen. The topic for this episode, I just wanted to say something really exciting that I'm looking forward to, which is going to be coming up in the next episode or two, is that my friend Marsh Graves, who is an equine behaviorist, will be joining us to answer some questions about equine behavior and training, and just talk about some common mindsets and views in the horse world and kind of just have a good time you know so she's very cool and she has a lot of great credentials she's worked alongside some big names like Shauna Karash and she's a lot of cool insight on the training of horses but also other animals so definitely look out for that and make sure you're following my podcast to wait for it because that'll be a really exciting episode that I'm really really looking forward to Today's episode topic is actually fairly ambiguous. I wanted to talk a bit about horse training and like how I think social media affects horse training and then also traditional horse training versus some of the new sci- newer science-based methods that people are now using and talking about and just some of the general mindsets surrounding traditional training as well as that of people who use predominantly positive reinforcement and the importance of accountability in training and all that jazz. So there's a lot of things that I'm going to cover and I think they're all important and they're all technically linked together in my mind, but whether or not I'm able to articulate that well enough without getting off track leaves to be discovered. So we'll see how it goes. The first thing I want to go into is on the topic of accountability in the horse world and the reason why I want to bring this up is because I often get people who are like super offended by things that I either put out in my podcast or on my Twitter or on my TikTok or Instagram just wherever I am because I'll say things that might be controversial or might be attacking a lot of traditional methods or management styles that people participate in And then they take it as them being told that they're inferior or me thinking that I'm better than them, when generally speaking, it's just the sharing of information. And I think the exact mentality where people jump on the defense and try to frame it as they're being bullied or spoken down to simply because people are sharing non-targeted scientific facts that may describe something that they do. I think that's a problem. And... It's one of the weirdest phenomenons that I've seen, like, result in people actually trying to quiet the spread of ethics-based information. And the reason why it's so concerning is because we have actually pretty large groups of people that will go out of their way on otherwise innocuous posts about alternatives to traditional methods and how you can do them in a more rewarding way. And they're not even mentioning anything about traditional training. They're not faulting the method. It just says, hey... 
this is an alternative to this, and this is why it's good. And then you get people commenting and going like, oh, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. This is stupid. I don't use food. It creates horses who mug. And it's like, okay, if that's your opinion, why don't you just scroll past? So the reason why I want to talk about this is because I think that the culture surrounding that exact mindset and like the psycho psychological factors involved are all related to some type of internal guilt because if someone truly did not think that there was a problem with what they were doing they shouldn't feel the need to try and discredit tutorial type videos or posts that serve the purpose of trying to educate people and offer them alternatives if they're having problems with their horses or if they just want something that's more rewards based so I think it's very concerning that we have people who do this because basically they're trying to discredit ethics-based training that honestly, in the grand scheme of things, only serves the purpose of trying to make things nicer for the horse. Like it has no real detriments to the horse in the same way that poorly used traditional methods can. So the fact that we have people who supposedly love horses, and I believe that they actually love their horses in some way, but they're trying to talk down about ethics-based methods and work to discredit the person saying them rather than prove why their method is better. And I think that's a huge problem and this is why social media plays such a huge role in shaping the minds of young equestrians as well as people who've been in the community a long time. And now the exact thing that I'm kind of referring to, for example, happened on, it's happened more than once to me, it happens all the time, but the recent occurrence was on TikTok where I posted a tutorial on how to do manes without pulling them while still getting a similar pulled look. And I made it the title Humane, with Maine all capitalized, care. Humane Maine care. And it's a pun, but people got so hyper offended by that where they're like, oh, so you're calling us an abuser if we pull our horse's mane. And I'm like, I wasn't aware that like the only alternative to the descriptor humane is like anything that you don't refer to as humane is abusive. Um, that's not true at all. It's like a very black and white mindset where it's like, okay, I'm suggesting this thing that has less of a chance of negative fallout than pulling does. And that's not even something people can argue. It's a fact because horses have been shown in studies to have negative re reactions to pulling. And I'm sure a lot of us anecdotally can recall horses that we have tried to pull the manes of that absolutely lose their minds and clearly are uncomfortable. So alternatives to pulling like thinning shears or using scissors, they really, they're really hard to abuse or create discomfort with in comparison to pulling. So referring to that method as humane, especially since it was a pun, like it's funny, come on guys, but especially since it's a pun, it's not an incorrect description and it's also not a description that's working to discredit the, the decisions of people who do things differently. Anyways, following that post, I had a bunch of people being like, oh, well, you're calling me an abuser for pulling my horse's mane, or just downright, like, insulting the way I do my horse's mane, be like, this is so stupid, I'm just going to pull my manes, and it's like, okay, like, I don't know why you're getting so defensive about a method that is directed at people who have horses who are clearly uncomfortable and want an alternative to pulling the mane. And the reason why I think mindsets like the people who commented on that post and took offense, those mindsets are so toxic in the horse community. And the reason for this is the fact that they're trying to like chase people away from saying these things or sharing videos by condescending and putting them down. And 
it's concerning because, like, as I said, it, the, a lot of these tutorial-type posts literally just serve the purpose of trying to make things better for the horse. So, if you pull your horse's mane and your horse has no reaction to it and is relaxed while you're pulling it, why do you, what do you have to prove to someone that's offering solutions for those who clearly do not have that issue? And the reason why it's even more troubling to read for me personally is that these people are like, oh, well, I'm just going to keep pulling my mane because it looks better. But, like, I think the mindset surrounding, like, the vanity of, like, how we want our horses to look and choosing to do something a certain way simply because you think it looks slightly better, even if your horse is in immense discomfort, I think that is, like, so selfish. And you literally cannot get around the fact that it's selfish because removing the mane and pulling it doesn't benefit the horse at all. It benefits you because we like the aesthetic of it. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. But the idea that the horse should have to put up with ex excess discomfort when they're telling you, like, hey, this hurts, I really don't like it. The idea that they should put up with that when there's viable alternatives to doing it, I think that it's just really kind of gross and, like, human-centric to just ignore a horse expressing their discomfort to you and just choosing not to do an alternative. And, like, worse than that condescending people who suggest the alternative and trying to get them to shut up because you took offense to it. That whole mindset is very toxic and it doesn't just apply to this one example. There's a lot of examples of people doing this all over social media, even like where I'll see people just like making fun of people who train with treats. And it's just like, why? Like, why are you so threatened by this? Like, they, they'll, I'm sure these, especially if any of these types of people are listening to this, they're going to say that it's not about what I'm going to say it is, but you don't elicit these types of defensive reactions from people if they truly don't think there's any problem with what they do, and whether they admit it or not, I think this defensiveness comes from like a closet feeling of guilt or the discomfort of wondering if they are in fact causing their horse discomfort or if they feel like their method might not be the best it's it comes from them not wanting to be open to other facts or admit to any wrongdoing or consider the fact that there might be in a way that's more ethical to do something and because they don't want to handle that personal discomfort they instead lash out at people and try to discredit the people putting out information that in the grand scheme of things is totally harmless and really only is concerned about benefiting the lives of the horses so instead of dealing with their own inner turmoil they would rather make the decision that will negatively impact both horses and people because you're trying to make people who are suggesting these types of methods that have less chance to be misused you're trying to make them feel alienated from the community or embarrassed to train the way that they are and for someone like me like people speaking to me this way really doesn't matter because I think all of my credentials speak for themselves and I'm not going to let any person with less of an education than me on Instagram or TikTok try to discredit what I'm saying by making fun of me rather than having an actual argument. It's not something that I'm going to let bother me and I'm pretty comfortable just calling them out on this but a lot of people aren't and for up-and-coming riders who are trying new things these types of toxic comments can chase them away from wanting to do something and the problem is it's not even isolated to just children. We have trainers that do the same thing and while they might not use social media as the main way of saying these things they'll use it to try to make fun of students or other trainers in the community that train in ways that they personally don't and they're not they're not even making an argument against the method itself and trying to say like hey like this is why I think this is bad and here's things that back up my point they're literally just using condescension and ad hominem attacks to try to shut people up and 
I think, like, especially with the horse community getting so much public attention now that we have social media, I think it's, like, super embarrassing for all of us as equestrians, for people outside the community to see stuff like that. Because if you were to say to, like, other people, oh, yeah, like, we rip our horse's hair out by the roots, and some horses are super uncomfortable and struggle, but it looks good, so I just do it anyways, they would be horrified. So, like, I feel like since we're getting more outside attention from people outside of the community, it's our job to, like, not look like cavemen in what we do and it doesn't mean that you need to completely subscribe to like purely positive training or anything but I think that it's foolish to try to discredit people who are perpetuating things that are founded by science and actually have more supports to them being reasonable methods than the ones that people are trying to defend by discrediting these methods. There's no large-scale studies done on mane pulling that suggest that horses are completely unbothered by them. A lot of the myths surrounding mane pulling, like the fact that horses don't have any nerves in their mane, they're myths, and people will use these to justify what they're doing, and in turn, the problem with this is if you think that horses don't have nerves in their mane and your horse reacts to mane pulling, it gives you more of a license to punish them for their behavior, because you'll go, oh, they don't even feel this, why are they behaving this way? They're being bad, they're doing this to just be deliberately bad and malicious, and then they get punished, and it's the horse who suffers because of it, and they're taught to silence their pain signals or discomfort that they're feeling for the sake of the person doing their care, because the person themselves doesn't want to deal with the discomfort that comes with learning more and potentially either accepting the fact that your method could elicit pain, or deciding to do something else that has less of a chance of doing so. And like I said, this doesn't just apply to main pulling. Like, for example, it's it's the reason why I wanted to do this as a podcast topic is because I've posted a few videos that like literally don't even put down people who use traditional methods and are just like sharing what I'm doing with my horses or joking about stuff that people said to me. Like I've had a few people tell me not to feed Banksy treats because he'll become rude and obnoxious. So when I posted a video of him doing his liberty work and doing it very well, I was just like, oh yeah, like shout out to the people who told me not to use treats to train him. And I had people going like, I never use treats. That's Horses can become pushy and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, cool. I didn't ask. I'm showing stuff about my horse. And why are you so defensive that you feel the need to say this? And it's gotten to the point now where sometimes I'll just look at people and I'll ask them, and I'm like, why do you feel this way? Like, why are you bringing up the words abuse or cruel when no one ever said these things? Like, you're projecting these things onto yourself. So, like, what does that say about your inner thoughts about what I'm saying here and that discomfort? Because you're choosing to describe yourself using descriptors that were never used by the person that you're responding to. And it, it is projection. Like, that's why I think people need to learn how to sit with their discomfort and hold themselves more accountable because in the horse community in specific, there's this huge lack of accountability where people never want to admit when they're wrong. They don't want to own up to mistakes that they've made in the past. And even like with equitation and stuff, we have people who will go after beginners posting videos of them riding online or photos online where they obviously have equitation faults because they're new and they're not as muscularly strong as someone who's been riding for years will be. And they also don't have the experience and they're still learning. So there's a period of time where even if they know what they're supposed to be doing and know what they're supposed to be looking like they can't just immediately sit on a horse and be able to do all these things and even still we have people who were once beginners that are willing to go and criticize equitation when it's not something that actually causes the horse discomfort and this is viewed as more acceptable to the point where I've seen lots of people justify it as like oh well if you post it online you're asking for it and then you see the same 
mindset, if you apply the same mindset to discussing welfare topics, people will view it as, like, unfair, or they'll make fun of you for being a tree hugger, or saying that your horses must all be ill-behaved because you feed them treats instead of hitting them, and they just, their entire argument is about making fun of the people who do things differently, and the irony behind it is that welfare topics are more relevant and fair to discuss online in a public setting than someone's personal equitation doing something that you don't aesthetically like, but in the grand scheme of things doesn't really have any negative fallout. But I've seen more people try to justify their right to essentially bully riders online, and then the very same people talking about how unfair it is and how it's shaming to discuss the fact that like horses that aren't in stalls are healthier than those that are in stalls typically because they have less of a risk of colic. And obviously there's other variables, but this is something that's like a tangible scientific fact. So it's not just like people are being unfair and just sharing a mere opinion. It actually has merit to it. But then you see these same types of people that are willing to slam riders for their outfits, their equitation, or so, whatever whatever the, the thing of the month is, the flavor of the month. They're willing to do that, but then as soon as welfare topics come up, they're very quick to try to silence those. And that exact mindset is like one of the biggest problems in the horse world because it lacks people holding themselves accountable. It encourages people to criticize others for materialistic things and justify it, but then try to get away from people sharing ethics-based questions. And even if people say things that aren't necessarily founded by fact, if the intention is to discuss the welfare of horses and how we can improve it, why are we trying to silence that conversation? Especially when like 99% of equestrians will say they're in this sport for the love of the horse. And if that's true, why are you trying to discredit welfare-based topics or shut them down or make it about you and try to victimize yourself um, about a welfare topic that's well-researched that people are sharing. Like, it's just such a weird thing to do. And it's very troubling to me that the horse community is so full of vanity and ego that people are willing to potentially disrupt movements to make the welfare of horses better just so that they can feel better about themselves. I say this not to like criticize other people or be like I'm so much better than you but I say this because I have had a lot of the views that I now criticize and part of that personal growth and becoming a better trainer and developing better horses required me to be honest with myself and critical of past experiences and be willing to point out where they were bad and where I went wrong and where I could do better and things that I was taught improperly and kind of develop and learn from it and to do so you can't be in denial or trying to shut people down and like I definitely engaged in a lot of those behaviors where I would try to quiet people for saying things that I didn't like or that would incite like underlying feelings of guilt in me I would try to shut people up for doing so but in the end it was literally I was being reactionary because it made me feel uncomfortable and I'll readily admit that now so when I do posts like this I'm not doing it to be like I'm better than you and you're wrong I'm right I'm doing it to say like hey I used to be just like you and I used to have a lot of these views and this is why those views are a problem and I think that people always viewing anything welfare based or learning based as a threat says a lot about people's priorities at the time and like initially like when I was younger I definitely prioritized how I was perceived by others and appearing like I knew everything and like I couldn't do any wrong with my horses and that everyone else who had any concerns that 
kind of conflicted with what I thought, like they were the problem and not me. And such mindset like prevented me from a lot of growth. And the mindset existed because of, first of all, how I was taught in my first several years of riding, how I learned and like what I was exposed to as role models when I started out riding was all very aggressive and like kind of showboaty and just about like, yeah, we're the best and this is the best way to do things and we can't be criticized and it's totally okay to bully horses because they need to be respectful. And that's what I was taught, and even stuff that I wasn't explicitly taught, like, in that the trainers didn't say, hey, do this, I would learn by watching examples of what people would do. So if you're within a barn where everyone is very quick to punish and hit their horses or be really hard on them and use a lot of pressure, even if you're not being explicitly taught to do these things, if it's all you ever see, especially before social media and the horse portion of social media was so active, how are you supposed to really learn about how it's different and then as soon as you get exposed to social media and outside opinions that's where it gets super uncomfortable because everything you've grown to know as right is then challenged by other people and a lot of what people say to challenge these opinions actually holds merit scientifically and so it leaves you with the choice of do I want to be egotistical and be draw a hard line and say no this is what I learned and I'm right you're wrong I'm not even willing to open these resources that might provide me with a different perspective and get really defensive and then try to degrade others as your means of defense for yourself you can you can make that your choice but that's the egotistical choice and it's not for the benefit of your horse or you can choose to be open-minded and even if it's hard and uncomfortable to try to learn where you can and develop your own opinions based off of what you learn scientifically anecdotally and just all in all the horses that you ride because like there's no there's no 100% like this is the only method you should ever use and this is the only way to train a horse ethically and correctly. There's no one thing that you can say like that because there's so many nuances. Even within the same methodology, you can train the same behavior in a bunch of different ways and you can come to the basically the same conclusion but in different ways. So there's not really any like black and white correct view of horse care but there are circumstances where you can look at two things and go this way is way less likely to be abused it provides more ethical care of the horse and considers the horse more than this way does and you can absolutely say that I know most of my podcasts are like a massive run-on sentence where I'm kind of going back and forth to a bunch of different views and that's just kind of my style as someone that doesn't write a script for these because I don't have time and just as someone with ADHD I know that there's not a whole lot of rhyme or reason but basically the point that I'm trying to get to is that like when I make these posts or when I share things that are like highly opinionated I don't think there's been very many times where I'm not being opinionated and against something that I once did so it's very much about learning from my past mistakes and wishing that I had done things differently because it's way harder to fix mistakes and like when you get certain philosophies ingrained in you and you get these habits formed where your first thing to go to is like harsh punishment or aggressive pressure where that's all you've known to do it's so hard to break those habits even if you know it's wrong like it has taken years for me to completely try to like rewire my brain to doing certain things 
and kind of reteach myself different ways of teaching a lot of the things that I once did aggressively. It has taken a lot of work, a lot of soul searching, education, and holding myself more accountable, which is why I do so many of these posts, because I like to talk about things that I have experienced in the past, because then I'm not just referencing science, because a lot of people who don't want to change their ways will try to discredit science and be like, oh, well, like, they, it's not practical knowledge on farms and it's like well it is because they did go to horse farms to do these studies but anyways let's let's ignore that but anyways so <laughs> what I'm saying is that people try to discredit science but then if they get to watch what you've been doing over the course of years and how it has resulted in changes in your horses and how as you've applied new methods the horses have ended up going better then they get not only the scientific aspect of it but also the anecdotal aspect where they can look at someone's photos and philosophies as they change over the course of years and look at how much better their horses have turned out and I think that like like I'd not to toot my own horn but I think my accounts are actually a pretty good example of this because I've posted a lot about my horses over the years I haven't really worked all that hard to try to misrepresent them and hide the bad parts of training and I think that there's been a pretty clear change in the quality of horses I produced the last couple of years versus like five to ten years ago. The first couple off-the-track thoroughbreds that I got looked like total garbage. They weren't up to par with the weight that I would expect now. They're the types of horses that if I got them in now, I would kind of view as kind of neglected, ulcery, needing more food and definitely more training and developing a top line before they move on to other things. So I would be highly critical and I still, like I am critical of my old photos of what I used to do with my horses. And it wasn't that I loved my horses any less back then. I was just ignorant and I didn't know a different way of doing things. So when people would suggest different ways or would target my beliefs I couldn't see another way around doing the thing that I was doing I couldn't see an alternative and my lack of desire to hold myself accountable and admit my wrongs and be vulnerable made it so that I was less willing to open any resources to help me learn this and realistically like it wasn't until I got Milo that I really started to kind of go and change my ways quickly and like Leading up to getting Milo, what I will say is one of the most profound changes that I had from what I was taught in the beginning of my riding career to what I do now is when I moved my Arab to a different boarding barn where he would be turned out 24-7, the change in his temperament was so profound that I couldn't any longer hold myself in denial that it was okay to keep horses stalled the majority of the time or in tiny little paddocks. It was just such an insane change in his behavior and his level of happiness that I couldn't be ignorant because it was right in front of me. And I started questioning things a little bit more then, but it still took me a long time before I would be vulnerable to the point of like looking back and recognizing previous mistakes or areas of weakness and be able to say like, hey, this is the mistake that I made back then. And this is what I've done to change it. It took me a long time. And then getting Milo was a pretty big wake-up call because I still used a lot of pressure and a lot of punishment in my training. And I would use, like, my, my timing wasn't as good for using pressure. So it was, like, more stressful and unfair to the horse. And then when the horses were bad, even though I was starting to dwindle in how frequently I would punish them, it was still, like, kind of a spur-of-the-moment thing where, you know, you the horse does something and it's been a habit for so long that your go-to thing is to punish them or hit them 
and it took a long time to break that and Milo definitely helps because when I first got him and he would do things like refusing to load in the trailer and then we try to like apply a bunch of pressure with like a bum rope or a broom pulling on his head putting a chain on his nose and so on and so forth all these things that I had learned as basically the only solution to get a problem loader into the trailer they didn't work on him and he would literally like rear up and basically almost flip himself over and he was so bad and so nervous and the more pressure you use the more he would lash out at you and he would get aggressive and like punishing him god forbid you punish him because he would like come for you so that to me was a pretty big wake-up call because I was like holy crap like I can't use a lot of these methods that I had grown so comfortable using in the past and I have to really de-escalate the amount of pressure I used or my horse is literally gonna kill me and like he had like in my opinion obviously this is like anthropomorphizing but Milo had like a greater sense of justice than any horse I had worked with before because the other ones that I'd worked with you could bully to some extent he could not be bullied because he was the type of horse that even if you're punishing him like for example when I first started taking him to outings and like starting him over fences a lot of the trainers that I clinicked with initially would want me to whip him for his refusals and I stopped doing that really quick like it didn't take more than a couple of sessions before I was like screw that because he would literally just back into the whip and he would let you continue spanking him and he would just kick out he would rear he would not go forward it didn't work and then he would start refusing like eight strides out from the fence and just completely draw back from your leg and then what are you supposed to do you can't get a horse forward and get enough impulsion to get them over a fence when they're starting their refusal that far away from the fence so these things kind of were a wake-up call to me and I really had to start to adapt my methods because they didn't work on him and then there was other things that were more subtle about his behavior that I started noticing one of which being one time when we were loading him to move barns and I had a hauler come out that I hired because this is before I had a, tra a trailer to use. So we were moving barns and he wouldn't load, which is pretty typical for him. They tried applying pressure, doing all the like bells and whistles of people that only know how to use pressure and not how to like make it a more positive and less fearful experience for the horse. And he wouldn't go. He was just refusing to load. He wouldn't go forward no matter how much pressure you put on the halter or behind him. He would rear up. And then at one point, he was just kind of standing there blowing and like breathing a bit hard, but he had a leg rested. And the lady that was trailering for me was insistent that he wasn't scared and he was just being bad because if he was comfortable enough to rest a leg that he couldn't be afraid and it was little comments like this where I started to look and I would be like I like I know this horse pretty well and like I really don't feel like he's just being bad or that he's not scared like I'm I'm pretty sure he's scared and it would be these little things where I was just like you know like this this isn't adding up people are telling me that these behaviors mean certain things but the situations and the context that they show up in aren't adding up doesn't make sense and so this is where I started to want to pursue equine sciences and go into behavior and learn more about it from what I viewed to be way more credible sources than the average horse person that I would have access to in the community because a lot of them will misrepresent behaviors or and even if well-intentioned they'll think that they're right they'd have no idea what the other way is but they just don't necessarily give you accurate information so I had to kind of search for it myself and I chose to do it through school because it was more structured and it offered me with resources that I would, would know were credible rather than just going my own way on Google and not necessarily knowing if what I found was supported or backed by science still or if it was outdated and 
that was kind of one of the biggest changes in my riding career was that is like starting to take these courses and learn more about the behaviors and then I learned how subtle stress signals could be and how struggle how how subtle pain signals could be and just a lot of the negative repercussions of too much pressure and that's where I kind of started to address Milo's loading problems because it was just so stressful like before like you'd have a trailer show up and since I didn't have a trailer we'd be going somewhere and like if he didn't get in we were going to be late and it was always like so much anxiety and stress in the beginning of these situations and it was just horrible it sucked the joy out of going anywhere and he wasn't getting any better from the pressure so then I started to use positive reinforcement and we stopped all to get like no one could stand behind him when he loads he will still to this day if someone is standing behind him when he's loading he often will not load because he's assuming that they're going to put too much pressure on behind him and he just won't go in and so I started using positive reinforcement to trailer load him and it took a really long time because I was just not able to practice loading him very often since I didn't have my own trailer but he did start to get better when we started to de-escalate the amount of pressure we used and that was kind of enough to me to show that this wasn't the way to handle things and from there I was able to like pretty much completely fix his trailering issues especially once I got my own trailer because then I was able to work on it more repeatedly but with that said like he still has a higher amount of anxiety pertaining to the trailer than what he would have if I had just done things properly from the start and that's kind of something that I have to sit with is that the amount of effort I'm gonna have to put in over the course of years to try to rectify that is so much more effort than it would have been if I'd just done it correctly from the first place and I say this because it's true because like I gave him a reason to have a trauma response to the trailer I gave him a reason to associate that with stress and he will still kind of have those feelings of stress even in the absence of the pressure that initially caused it and that's on me as a handler and trainer for screwing it up and on the flip side when I compare him to Banksy who is my coming two-year-old colt that I've had since birth so he's been with me and I've been able to monitor how he's handled trained and cared for since birth Banksy is so much more willing to try new things. He's so much braver and more confident. And he actually, like, we have to actually hold him back from going into the trailer because I reinforced it so heavily that now as soon as the door is open, he just wants to go in. And it's a very clear difference. And obviously, like, Banksy didn't deal with any of the trauma Milo did as a rescue horse who was starved. So that adds to it as well. But it gives me a taste of how much better Milo could have been if I had been where I was now when I got him. That makes me pretty sad because it's just like, wow, like I could have had an easier, more fun, better time and a better relationship with him sooner if I hadn't made these mistakes. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing these things with people because for me it's actually personal and like I I honestly can't stop thinking about the fact that if Milo had gone to someone that was less willing to address the mistakes in their training and less willing to consider alternatives to pressure-based training and punishment he would have been the very type of horse that people would view rule as the problem horse that would get passed around to trainers and his options would either be to have like his spirit completely broken because people would continue to up the amount of pressure until he eventually just gave in and went into learned helplessness 
Which, for a horse like him, like, I honestly can't think of anything more devastating than that, because I can't even imagine the- sorry, I'm tearing up. I can't even imagine the amount of pressure it would take to have him give in like that and just shut down, because he's such a spirited horse. Like, I can't think of anything that would be more awful than that, so he would either have the decision to do that, or he would quite literally kill himself or the handler trying to fight back, and- that's the type of horse he is, and he's very quirky and different, and it was very frustrating and infuriating in the beginning, and I had a lot of arguments with him over it because I wasn't in control of my own emotions, and I didn't know better alternatives the whole way along to use, so it was frustrating to not know what to do, and to then, I chose to blame him sometimes because that was the easier alternative, but... The reason why it's so personal to me to like share this type of information with people and just kind of be passionate about being outspoken about welfare online is just because like I know that like my horse if he had gone to like one of the more traditional standard type barns that are were like are in, are still in such abundance and were even more so when I got him 7 years ago if I if he had gone to someone like that who wasn't as considerate of his emotions and were to label all of his negative behaviors as him being bad or choosing to not listen, he would have been so mistreated and it would have, like, he would have been dangerous and even, like, stuff like with being in a stall 24-7. He's the type of horse that people would look at at a boarding barn and he'd be in a stall too much, even if it's not 24-7, even if we're talking stalled 16 to 20 hours a day, which is still a lot, but even something just like that, he would be mean. Because, and I, I know this from experience, because the few times he's had to be on stall rest, if it extends past a certain point, he is so frustrated that he starts to take it out on his handlers. And while he shouldn't necessarily do that, he's not wrong in his frustration, and he's looking for an outlet for the frustration. I've not had to put him on stall rest for several years now, and he's fine being in a stall for, like, weekends at shows and whatnot now, because he's gotten better at it. But when we had him on stall rest, like, it was literally like an in-and-out paddock, too. So it's not even like he was just in a stall all he was nasty like he would try to bite people if you took him out he would be pinning his ears and trying to get at you I remember one point I had the vet out because he hit his jaw on something and I wanted them to look at it to make sure it wasn't an abscess when they were coming to do another exam for his injury and when the vet was out he was being super nasty and he was trying to bite everyone he was cranky didn't want to stand still really was just trying to get out of the paddock and when the vet went to go check on the part of his jaw that was kind of inflamed uh they were trying to touch it and he they couldn't even go near his head because he was shaking his head and he was trying to bite them and he was trying to get away um and knowing him i looked at the situation and i i looked at the vet and i was like okay um could could i call you in 24 hours once you leave i'm going to give him some time to calm down and I'll call you in 24 hours after I have felt the lump and pushed on it and then I can tell you if he's sore because they told me if he was really sore then it's probably an abscess and that we'd have to kind of look into it further and sedate him and maybe image the jaw and I didn't want to do all of that because I just had this feeling that he was just reacting to his frustration with his environment. So I sent the vet home and Sure enough, half an hour after they leave, I can push on his jaw as hard as I can, and it would just ended up being a bone bruise, which ended up going away on its own after a, a bit of time. And 
I think that's a good example of, like, a case where a lot of people would have wanted to punish him because he was being bad. He was being difficult, but he was just reacting to his frustration with his environment. And with the stalling stuff, too, like, he's the type of horse that makes me passionate about talking about, like, socialization and, like, allowing horses time outside, even if just in a small paddock and all that stuff. Because I know for a fact if he were in a situation where he was stalled most of the time and didn't have friends to play with, he would become so frustrated that he'd be aggressive and the type of horse that people don't want to deal with. And he'd probably get labeled as an aggressive and dangerous and bad horse. And he's not. Like, he's not like that at all. Like, he's actually a very sweet horse. He's a bit quirky in that, like, he's very clear about what he likes and he doesn't like, which is great because then he communicates with it, it with you and you can know. And he likes people and he loves coming out to people and doing things on his own terms. He just doesn't like to be bullied. But he's, like, a very sweet horse. He's not an aggressive, nasty, or mean, or dangerous horse, in my opinion. He's just spirited, as he should be. But he's the type of horse that in the wrong situation, people would easily label as just a bad horse. And one of the horses where people would either want them euthanized or taken to, like, a trainer, like a cowboy that's gonna just push them until they give up, basically. He'd be that type of problem horse. And... I want to protect horses like him, even if just by changing the minds of like a few people and making them more conscious of these things, because I think that the vast majority of horses that fall through the cracks and are labeled as bad and dangerous horses have just been done dirty by people or their management situation. And I find it really sad that the horse ends up having to take the blame for that. And then they're ruled as like this villain when they're just responding to the lack of clarity in training or the unfairness in training or the frustration that stems from their environment. If they're not, if they're not turned out enough or if they never get to interact with other horses, some horses are more sensitive to those types of things and they do not cope as well. So they're more likely to turn to aggression and other ill behaviors as their means of dealing with that frustration Whereas other horses may be more likely to kind of shut down and ignore it and just kind of go into a state of being where they appear calm and like going through the motions of life, doing whatever they're asked, but they're not necessarily happy about it. But people are less likely to notice such discomfort in those horses because they're not as loud about it. You'll have horses that are very extroverted with their views of discomfort and they're upset with the environment and you'll have horses that are more subtle of, about it. And it really just depends. And I think what they were called in my equine behavior classes, they referred to it as active or passive copers. And Milo would be an active coper because he copes with showing, expressing his behavior and using like outward examples of behavior to display his lack of enjoyment of things or his frustration with things. And then you have horses that are passive copers. Like I'm just trying to think of a horse that I would have had that would have been a passive coper. Passive Coper would kind of be more like my Arab gelding in a lot of ways because he never had any stall vices despite being stalled all the time. He always appeared calm and, for lack of a better word, happy. Happy to me at the time in his stall, but he wasn't happy. His his behavior was active under saddle in the sense that he would bolt and do things like being exceptionally spooky, and that was kind of his release of all the extra energy from lack of turnout. But in the stall, he was a passive coper. Like, he never showed any sign of a vice or anything that would express clear, clear problems with being stalled. And... So I think that's the important distinction is for every horse like Milo that's super loud and will tell you when something bothers them very loudly and doesn't deal with 
very high levels of discomfort before they start getting loud about it. There's many horses that otherwise will appear calm, happy, well-trained that have more or less shut down because that's the way they've chosen to cope with the stress in their life. And I honestly don't know which is more sad, to be quite frank, because like the nice thing about active copers, even though they tend to be more dangerous, is that at least they're expressing themselves and it's easier to figure out the whys behind those behaviors than it is for a horse that just doesn't tell you anything. And then the other problem with passive copers is that you'll have horses that like basically won't show any outward signs of distress. Like I had a client horse that had been like from my, I, I can't say this for certain but from her behaviors that she showed me I had thought that at some point she was either hard tied to like a patient's pole and pulled back until she had to give up or she was laid down forcibly by getting roped and so she was mostly a passive coper but the problem with a lot of these passive copers is they won't really give you clear outward behavior signs like the really the only sign is if you look at their eyes or if you were to listen to their heart rate and so she she wouldn't show any large outward signs of distress and the problem is when you're doing stuff like grooming a horse you're not always being able to see their face and their eyes and they'll otherwise be standing there completely quietly but then when they're over threshold they become violently dangerous so this particular horse 90% of the time, she's a passive coper. She would stand there quietly. She would just be hanging out. She would tie. She would groom. Totally sweet and quiet. And then if something bothered her and sent her over threshold, for example, being tacked, she would express that violently. And this was very worrisome to me because a lot of people aren't so sensitive to look at the face of the horse and understand how they're feeling and if they couldn't do that before getting on her or doing something with her she would explode and this was seen to me like as like the first kind of test day that I took her out something really scared her when she was saddled and she went into tonic immobility which is terrifying if you look it up it's like basically when an animal becomes so overwhelmed that they just go like despondent and like lay down or go into a state where they're basically in a trance and they're not paying attention they're not moving so she got so stressed from a noise that scared her after being tacked and since she was such a passive coper and what I'd been told was that she was broke I had saddled her and she clearly wasn't ready for the saddle so anyways the noise is a trigger that stacks on all the other anxiety that she's feeling that isn't being expressed as clearly as what she was clearly feeling. Like, she wasn't expressing such a high level of anxiety so as to cause that. She was putting it all inside of her and kind of internalizing it. So anyways, when she spooked, she laid down herself. Like, she, she backed up, and then she sat, and then she laid down in the saddle with, like, a halter on. And I was like, holy shit, it scared the freaking daylights out of me never again like now I'm so careful with horses because this was terrifying so she was down and I couldn't get her up and I was trying to get her up I tried grabbing her food I tried pulling on the halter I tried pushing at her hind quarter to get her up and eventually I was just like okay I was looking at her and I was like okay so she's clearly been light laid down before because this is a very atypical behavior to do and I'm guessing that when she would have reactions initially if she was ever with someone abusive they probably laid her down as a means of handling her bad behavior so I decided to untack her from the lay down I undid the girth I took the saddle off I took her halter off right away and just yeah had her loose like that and 
right away, as soon as I took the halter off, she stood up. And I was like, okay. So that's why I think she was hard tied or laid down. Because as soon as the halter came off, she was up. She's okay. And she's, she realized she could get up. It was the second the tension from her pull of the halter being there was gone, she was okay. And that's why passive copers are so dangerous because they can be quiet, quiet, quiet and seem like they're going through the motions, everything's okay. And then that's where you get these violent outbursts where people will be like, wow, this horse is so dangerous. This happened out of nowhere, but it really isn't out of nowhere. They've been stacking triggers and internalizing their stress and it's been getting ignored because they've likely been punished in the past for expressing their distress or discomfort. So they've learned to internalize it. And then that's when you get these huge dangerous reactions where the rider or handler isn't prepared for them because the horse has done such a good job of masking their level of stress that when it is finally too much, they react so violently that it doesn't seem to reflect a fair reaction to whatever the stimuli that finally took them over the edges. So Passive copers are dangerous, and obviously so are active copers, because if they're like Milo, where they get aggressive when they're stressed, they can be really dangerous for people that don't know how to dial back their emotions and do that. So these examples are why it has become like my life's work to try to share this information with people and try to change their perceptions on what is fair management for horses and what is fair training, because I own a horse that I know like is one of the horses that would have easily fallen through the cracks if he had ended up with the wrong person. He could have ended up super depressed from being told he's never allowed to express himself, or he could have ended up aggressive and dangerous. And horses like him, I want to protect. And even like, for example, Simon, my auction pony that I got, who was totally feral when I got him, he could have gone to someone that would have wanted to trap him, get a halter on him right away, and basically just force him to be involved with people and make it an exceedingly stressful experience. And it would have worked in the sense that you could have gotten him halter broke and able to be handled in doing so but his initial association with people would just be so fearful and negative and that's why like for getting him okay with people much of what I did was just sitting on the ground of the stall reading a book letting him come over and investigate me himself and then rewarding it and then with the halter too rewarding him for putting his nose through it and whatnot and I did apply some more pressure to try to get it done sooner because since he was in quarantine and he wasn't able to be handled, he was in a stall and I wanted to get him out of a stall as soon as possible. And to do so, I needed a halter on him. So I did the halter a little bit quicker than I what I would typically do, but it was still predominantly reinforcement based with food. And it resulted in him having a more positive relationship with people. And then as soon as they get over that initial fear and trauma associated with the approach of people, things come along very, very quickly. But he could have had the same results in terms of having been halter broke and started with a different means of training. It just would have been so much more negative. This is why I think like accountability and like reflecting on past methods and like where you can do better is so important because if you truly want to better yourself as a rider and handler, you kind of need to do this and you need to not be so tied to like this is the way it's always been, this is what everyone else does, that you're unwilling to consider alternatives even when they're backed by science or by reputable people and I also think this is why it's important for people to consider like how much pressure they use because like I'm not someone who's anti-pressure, like I'm not against negative reinforcement. I think that it can be used well, and I think that it can result in 
well-trained behaviors, but I think that as a general rule, how we have been taught to interact and grow up with horses has resulted in people being willing to escalate pressure very quickly and use an awful lot of pressure and also be super quick to punish. And I say this because I used to be one of those people, as I mentioned earlier, like I would punish way more readily than I do now. And it's just, it's one of those things where once you start doing it, it's such a hard habit to break because punishing a horse, especially when you're frustrated with the horse, it's reinforcing to you as a human because you're getting to physically take out your frustration on an animal. And this doesn't even mean you have to be like laying into them and like beating them, but like even just getting to hit them when they've really frustrated you, it's reinforcing to you. And that's, problematic because it doesn't really do anything for the horse and like the more I've learned the more I've tried to erase punishment from my repertoire and this isn't to say that like I'm never going to use positive punishment because there's been circumstances where I've been like in a stall with a horse and they'll come at me aggressively and it's not a situation that I can train in immediately or fix so I'll use a pitchfork to create a barrier and try to get them off of me and yes that's punishing I wouldn't hit them with a pitchfork hard but I'll use it to try to get them away from me and and, or even situations where I'm walking down the alleyway at a racetrack and a horse tries to bite my arm, I might stick my elbow out so that they catch my elbow instead of biting me, and it's still a punishing thing, but again, that's not a training situation. And I think that's a clear distinction, is, like, how repeatedly you use it, and, like, like to what extent you punish, because a lot of people will take their punishment so far over the top that it doesn't reflect the how bad the behavior you're punishing even was like I've seen people punish horses for like a full three minutes after the initial thing that they did and it's pointless because at that point the horse doesn't even know why you're still mad at them and I think that's the biggest problem with punishment is that it's very easy to get carried away and overuse it and in reality like for effective training like punishment isn't like something that you do to train it's something that you should use as like a protection very sparingly and then all of your training should be about focusing on the behaviors you want and showing your horse the behaviors you want rather than showing them what you don't want because too much punishment will result in passive copers like I mentioned earlier with horses masking their behaviors because they're afraid to trial new behaviors and potentially get the wrong one and get punished so if you reduce the amount of punishment you use you're way more likely to have a horse that's readily communicating with you because they're not going to be afraid of being punished if they offer a behavior that you don't like. Um, and generally speaking, it's also way quicker to remodel behavior without using punishment because a lot of horses will increase their aggression and like a lot of animals. Punishment often results in increased aggression because they'll get defensive and they'll feel like they need to do it as like a response to the pressure that's being imposed on them by the punishment. And so it's not necessarily the safest way to handle horses, especially since we know horses are flight animals. Punishing them will inevitably make them more fearful and stressed. And horses who are fearful and stressed and responding with their flight response are always going to be way more dangerous. And that's kind of where a lot of the injuries to humans have happened is horses having these big flight responses and responding with really big dangerous reactions that aren't as easily able to be predicted and handled. So I think... All of that is like why it's so important to support a lot of the methods that people are pushing for ethicality purposes and not try to silence them because we have like a lot of states of mind in the horse world that are so problematic and if they 
come to the public eye to the extent that people within the industry will see them, it's going to be very embarrassing. And honestly, it could be the bane of the existence of the horse world as a whole and like competitions and whatnot. And realistically, like I think that people that are promoting welfare for animals that would have problems with the horse world, a lot of the problems that they have that they take issue with are relevant. They just kind of go to such an extreme in their fight for ethicality that it's too much. But like there there needs to be more protections for the horse because it's great that we have like safe sport now for people, but there needs to be more protections to hold people accountable for what they do to their horses. And also just rules and regulations in general to discourage people from taking shortcuts related to really heavy bits or like certain training devices because at the end of the day, like you can't really justify them. And what I mean by this is like if you're riding your horse in like a double twisted wire gag, even if your horse is soft in it and goes better than what they might have in a snaffle, what you have to admit to yourself in that state is that you've chosen a piece of equipment that works because of the discomfort it puts the horse in, and you've chosen that over doing the smaller, more time, more time, like, extensive things to train them to be comfortable and going well and less. And... I think that this is something important for people to acknowledge because it's so often justified and used as an excuse that like some horses just need stronger bits. And I'm not going to say that this is always untrue, but like there's certain bits that like no horse who has been trained correctly by someone who values ethics and doing things properly over the speed at which they're able to get their horse to the level they want it to be. Horses that are trained that way, they're never going to need some of the contraptions that we see, especially on the show jumping circuit. Like, I would say show jumping and barrel racing are arguably the two worst circuits in terms of the equipment that is allowed to enter the show ring. And there are certain things that you just, you cannot use on your horse without sacrificing your morals and integrity and kindness to the horse. And I'm like I'm very open-minded with a lot of types of bits. I definitely prefer snaffles and for me personally, I wouldn't like it like bidding up to something more than a basic soft snaffle would be like an absolute last resort to me now. But there's just certain things you can't do without sacrificing your relationship with a horse and putting your desires as a rider ahead of what is fair to the comfort of the horse and using certain bit contraptions is one of those using draw reins to try to force their head down when they're not ready to maintain that position for an extended period of time is one of them and there's just a lot of ways that people put their own goals ahead of the comfort of the horse and they do so because they can't feel the discomfort. It's easy to ignore because horses aren't necessarily super loud about the discomfort, and they might even tolerate it to an extent. The horse might still let them catch them in the field. And it's just, it, it's one of those things where you can't, you can't be blind to it, and you have to at some point hold yourself accountable and start acknowledging these things. Because, like, realistically, like, you can't, deny the mechanics of certain pieces of equipment and how they work, how they amplify pressure, how they use abrasive materials to cause discomfort, and all of that jazz. You can't deny it. And it's one thing to, like, to have a horse be temporarily uncomfortable for the goal of, like, fixing a behavior, for example, like, using a nose chain. If you have a horse that's coming off of stall rest and, and, um, if you have a horse that's coming off of stall rest and 
is really excited and they're not you're not necessarily always able to sedate them using a chain in that situation is the more ethical and kind thing to do because if they were to get loose or do something silly then you have a bigger problem with like their health to worry about because they could easily re-injure themselves and there's certain times where like you can choose the lesser of the two evils. And I think that being completely opposed to using more equipment in times where it might be medically necessary or in times where you're not in a training situation, I think that the people are, are that are that rigid that they're like, there's never a time you should ever use a nose chain or there's never a time where a twitch is ever acceptable. People are who are that rigid, I don't think I've been in that many realistic circumstances because I can think of like circumstances where it would be irresponsible to not do that where you can't train the horse like for example if I have a client horse who is difficult who I'm still working with but hurts itself and needs a, an injection to be sedated to be treated but it won't let the vet get near it with a needle unless it's twitched I would twitch the horse because while I know it'll cause the horse discomfort in that moment and it's not the nicest thing to do it'll allow them to get the treatment that they need and then I can work on their anxiety around needles at a later time and I think that's kind of the practical way we need to start looking at things because otherwise there's a lot of rigidity and animosity on either side. You have people that subscribe completely to traditional methods that aren't willing to even consider other ways and are insistent that they don't work even when they've never even tried to apply them. And then you have people on the other side that use predominantly positive reinforcement, which is great, but then they'll be really condescending and cruel to people who you might need to use a chain at some point or so on and so forth. And it's just like, it's not so black and white that there's like never a justifiable reason to use certain types of equipment. Like there's certain bits that just simply shouldn't exist. But with that said, like if, a, if I had a client that is like a child and has a strong horse that they're not going to sell and for safety purposes, it would be better to put the horse in a Pelham. I would probably do it for the safety of the client and then work on getting the horse going softly enough that it can go into something better. And these are kind of the circumstances where you have to be practical and weigh out the pros and cons and be honest and realistic with yourself. But with that said, I find a lot of decisions that are made by horse people are made out of sheer laziness. And I think that's why people get so defensive and rigid in their views and be like, oh, under no circumstances should you ever do this if you're an ethical rider. And they're not wrong per se but it's just a very idealistic way of viewing the world and then those types of really rigid people end up scaring people off from adopting more ethical methods because they'll view it as too extreme. I think this is why it's important for people to kind of find a place in the middle where you can look at like hey like I would personally teach these things differently but at least this person is using well-timed pressure and release and not going really hard to the point where they're like escalating pressure to an absurd uh, absurd amount I think people should be able to look at things like that and be able to pick things that they like out of people's training and not be so hypercritical of it if it's not completely what they agree with and like same thing even with management like I think that all horses deserve to be out as much as possible but I'm not going to fault someone who has their horse boarded at a place in a city with an in and out paddock that it gets to go in just because it's not going out on grass pasture like it's still better a better situation than what a lot of horses are in and that that's kind of just where you meet in the middle and you try to remain open-minded for whatever is best for the horse in that situation and you also can like 
kindly try to push people in the direction that you think they should go, but taking a really radical, rigid stance of, like, this is the way it has to be done and anything outside of this is terrible, it scares people away and it makes them less likely to change. But at the same time, all riders need to learn how to hold themselves more accountable for any mistakes that they make because at the end of the day, like, a lot of the mistakes we make can negatively impact horses and it's way harder to undo mistakes of the past than it is to just not make them in the first place. So that's something that I think the horse world could really benefit from in changing. And I do really like how many more studies are becoming available on horses and how much more we're learning about horses in modern times, because we really did lack a lot of studies on the training of horses until fairly recently, whereas dogs are a way more highly researched animal. But it, it's an, it's moving in a positive direction, and a lot of people are sharing more and more articles and stuff to kind of prove that a lot of the stuff that people will still continually justify as being without problems is not the case. And the main one that I think this for is stalling, because like in movies and TV shows, horses are largely depicted as living in stalls. And it's very normalized. A lot of people grow up with their horses only ever being in stalls and being at boarding barns that predominantly stall horses or keep them in little paddocks and don't allow for socialization. So it seems normal, but the problem with this is that a lot of people assume that it's without any detriments or problems to the horse and I think that's the really important distinction. Look at something that you do with your horse and understand that it's not the perfect ideal while still being aware of the fact that there are detriments that come f with it. For example, like people that have horses that they can't turn out in social turnout, you can look at it and go, okay, well, my horse can interact with other horses over the fence and I don't turn them out with other horses because they have hind shoes on, but this is the best situation I can offer with the circumstances I'm in but with that said social turnout is what is the most ideal and it doesn't make you less of a horse person to admit that in fact I have way more respect for people who have that amount of integrity because like even for myself like I talk about turnout and stuff all the time and I wish my horses were out on a larger turnout but the area I live in it's actually pretty uncommon to have any boarding stable that has social turnout let alone shared turnout like in big plots of land like a lot of the places just have little dry lot paddocks like in and out paddocks and a lot of horses still come in at night to be stalled like completely and so like the situation my horse my horses are in is actually fairly unique for the area that I live in and they have plenty of room in their field to run around they get to play together and they're not showing me any clear stress behaviors but I wish they had more space and that's like my ultimate goal is to have more space for them to go out because that's what's most fair to them and it doesn't make me less of a horse person for admitting that and it doesn't mean my horses have a bad quality of life it just means that like if I could improve the situation I would and I'm aware that like if we were to compare like their field as is to like 20 acres of field where they could go through forests and eat trees and different types of grasses that would provide them with a lot more stimulation than the field they're in so that would be like the perfect ideal for them but it doesn't mean that they're actively suffering from the situation that they're in if that makes sense so I know like a lot of people will try to discredit what I say and be like oh well you're hypocritical because horses should have this amount of land and they should be able to go out on grass year round and da 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 and it's like okay well like yeah that's great but that's like an idealistic way of viewing it but I'm not going to disagree with people that it would be better if my horses had a bigger turnout because that's what I want for them in the future anyways and 
I would also love for them to be able to have access to grass year-round, but also part of that realistic viewpoint is that I live in a rainforest. Very few boarding barns do year-round grass turnout because if the turnout isn't extremely large, horses will turn it to mud right quick because the ground is so wet. And so a lot of people don't even do grass turnout over the winter and they'll just do dry lots, which is like the normal here because that's what works best for our weather. And while that's not the perfect ideal, if your horses have free choice hay, you can make it work and you can enrich it to be better than just a plain dry lot would be without hay or friends or toys to play with. And that's kind of just what's realistic for my area. But one day I really do hope I'll be able to afford to get the place that like my horses fully deserve and like allow them to have lots of fields to explore on and enough space to like rotate turnouts and just make it a better place for them. And it doesn't mean that like I'm depriving my horses of a good life because they have a good life and they're happy and they're really expressive with their behaviors and they love being out with them with each other because they're friends and it's great. And so, like, it doesn't, it's not me saying that, like, oh, they're in a, such a bad state, they're being neglected, it's just being able to recognize, like, hey, like, there's alternatives to this that would be the most ideal, and again, like, it's not a weakness to admit that, and I think that the more people that do that, like, the better you're able to actually provide for your horse, because if you're in denial that the way you're keeping them is a problem, like, for example, a lot of people who have their stall, their horses stalled most of the time are in denial that it's a problem, and if you're in denial and you're not even willing to consider the detriments that come with stalling or that some of the mental health problems associated with it, if you're in denial, you're not likely to offer your horse enrichment or other things to make their living situation better in the situation that they're in. And that's the problem is having like a realistic look at like your situation and being able to look at it from the perspective of like the five basic freedoms of animal welfare and horses being able to practice species specific behaviors. Like you should be able to look at it objectively like that and be like, okay, like, yes, I can't better this situation currently. You might want to in the future. Or if you look at the place you live and you're like, okay, this isn't realistic, but how can I make this as good as possible for the horse to make up for some of the things that they're missing out on? And that requires self-reflection and accountability and the ability to admit where like, hey, like based off of like the needs of a horse, this is not as ideal, but here are some things that I can do to make it more ideal, if that makes sense. And so that's why I try to encourage this level of accountability for horse people, because I think that it's really important for people to look at things more realistically and objectively, even if it means like kind of faulting themselves or understanding that like, yeah, like I'm not the best horse person on this planet in terms of like the management that I provide for my horses, but I'm doing my best with what I can and I'm conscious of their feelings and indicators of stress and I'm trying to enrich the life that they're in. And if we can all do that, like even in situations where horses are living in cities, if their owners were more realistic about it and went, hey, like stalls aren't ideal, how can we better the lives of city horses? We could start looking at ways of building or adapting barns to make it more horse friendly. And the greater d demand that there is for this to happen, the more incentive there is for boarding facilities to change their ways and for to start adapting the horse world. But that'll require people actually holding themselves more accountable and being more understanding of how their horses might feel in a certain situation and not being so quick to refute and ignore science or get defensive or act like someone's personally attacking them for sharing articles about horse care. 
Like, I'm not personally attacking anyone when I say, hey, like, stalling increases the colic rates. That's a fact. It does. We know this. We've studied it. Arguably one of the most extensive things that we've studied about horses. So we know that's a thing. I'm not faulting you if your horse is stalled a lot. I'm just saying it's a fact. You can take it or leave it, but if at least if you're aware of it, you can start to make some changes to make your horse lower risk for colic, even if they remain in a stall. And that is important if you value the welfare of your horse. You need to be able to look at things instead of trying to be in denial about them. And it doesn't make you a bad owner. It just means that you need to like consider ways to better the situation that your horse is in. And it's not anyone calling you an abuser. It's just like, hey, like consider these things that we've studied or consider the mechanics of this bit that you're using and that your horse is very highly unlikely to be actually comfortable in it. And that softness in the bridle isn't an indicator that the horse likes a bit we just perceive it that way because when they're softer and easier to control it's beneficial to us but that doesn't mean that the horse is going oh boy I love this double twisted wire shank or I love this bike chain I love this Waterford bit that's rubbing the crap out of the corners of my mouth and like that's the important thing. Like we make, we, we pick and choose our horses likes and dislikes based off of what's most convenient for us. And this happens a lot of times. And like I said, there's an adjustment period. Like I'm not always perfect. I have habits that I'm like still to this day working on breaking and figuring out ways to do them better because I was taught so poorly in, in the beginning. And the foundational aspect of learning to ride is actually so crucial because it kind of makes or breaks the direction that you go with horses. And the first few trainers that you're with as a rider can really heavily impact how you treat and care for your horses, which is honestly like so concerning because like beginner riders really, unless they come from a horsey family, like how are they supposed to vet trainers to know like who's the best to go to? And like, how are you supposed to like, be able to judge the health and happiness of their horses before you've learned about how to do so. And I've said this in previous podcasts, but a lot of trainers and barns will actually go out of their way to misrepresent behaviors, whether they know what the actual behavior is or not, because it serves them better to look at things and be like, oh, this behavior of like head bobbing or weaving in the stall is just the horse dancing rather than acknowledging the fact that the horse is stressed. It serves them better. It's a more comfortable place for them to be. And that's why they do it. And it's really hard for beginners because if you don't have the means of screening these people, there's not really anything to protect you from ending up somewhere where you might be getting fed misinformation. And I think this is also a reason why certifications on like actual like equine behavior and management skills actually are in more need than any coaching certification is because yes like coaching certifications are great and you can prove that you can teach people and that you're qualified to teach riding based skills but it doesn't require any proof that you can read and understand equine behavior well or that you know how to manage horses well and that you're going to reflect correct management ideals coaching licensing does not do this and there's not really very many governing boards that actually require any type of knowledge on horse behavior. Like most of the certifications that you get are directed towards coaching and being able to teach people in lessons and know how to teach concepts for riding. But none of these concepts necessarily factor in how the horse is feeling or what they're saying to you. And I would really like to see that change because then it would help protect 
young riders and like new riders from going into a place where they might be learning things that they wouldn't want to learn because I find it really hard to believe that like any horse loving child or horse loving adult that's getting into riding goes into it going like hey like I want to learn how to hit and like beat the shit out of my horse to get a point across I don't think anyone really does that because they love horses as the animal and they want to be friends with their horse and they want to love their horse and have a better relationship with their horse and then the more you go into like these really like like soul crushing barns where horses are unhappy and have these problem behaviors you get a bit jaded and then you start lashing out at the horses for exhibiting frustrated or stressed behaviors that are because of the situation they're in or how they're being trained and then you view it as like bad behavior because it's easier to view it as that and that might be what you're taught and then you react accordingly And then the same people might wonder why their horse no longer wants to be caught by them or something. Like, there's just so many layers to this problem. And it just, it's not something that I see changing very soon if the horse world is, like, so fixated on insulting and criticizing people for talking about ways to make the sport more ethical or trying to discourage people from learning sciences. Because even the people that discredit equine sciences and kind of make fun of people or claim that those that study equine sciences can't train even those people I can pretty much guarantee you that in at least one aspect of their life and that is like the absolute minimum it's going to be way more than that they they defer to science so you can't cherry pick when you decide to listen to science if you're willing to go to the doctor to get your medical issues treated you can't refute the doctors that are studying equine behavior and telling us new things that they're learning about horse because we're still learning so much about them and it wasn't like that long ago when people thought that horses weren't capable of any emotions or that they were these big stupid animals that you had to muscle into doing what you wanted because they don't learn from other ways of learning like we didn't think they could learn like dogs back in the day and they can learn from very similar methodology including like positive reinforcement and while they're obviously not at all the same animals they aren't that much they're, they're not like less intelligent necessarily like I would argue that horses learn differently because they're flight animals of course but I don't think their capacity to learn things and understand things is less than like what we know of dogs personally and I can't like obviously prove that because it's not like we've done a ton of studies comparing the cognition of horses to dogs but what I will say is that I think that their learning style and their or their, their capacity to learn things isn't necessarily less and a lot of people just assume horses are stupid and then this changes how we handle them too and that's why I think yeah acknowledging science is a very important part of like any part of life and just learning in general but like if you want to become like a better trainer you do need to have a healthy respect for science and you don't necessarily have to agree with the exact application of everything but you could look at the validity of it and go like okay this has merit this is something that might need to be studied more but there's something there that shouldn't be completely written off or ignored, especially when the only thing you're refuting it with is anecdotes. Like, people who say, like, oh, don't train with food because horses will become mouthy. Like, people like that haven't looked very far into it in studies and stuff. And it's also a little bit hypocritical because I've seen so many people who have dogs say this very same thing and they'll use treats for their dogs. And it's like, okay, so what's the difference? If you don't think your dog is only interacting with you because of the food then why are you applying it to your horse you know and and in studies too like it's been 
shown to be a powerful motivator so whether you use it or not you can't write it off and I also think it's really it's a cop-out for people to go like oh well horses will become mouthy if you hand feed them and it's like no they'll become mouthy if you hand feed them by reinforcing mouthy behaviors and it lacks accountability because they choose to blame the method rather than their application of it and it would be like the same thing as me going oh well like anyone who uses negative reinforcement is stupid because this one person I know caused a horse to flip over from using so much pressure or this horse lashed out aggressively from using so much pressure or this trainer that I know is using negative reinforcement to lunge a horse and the horse flipped over cracked its skull and died you know you can find the worst case scenario for anything and you can if you go out of your way to cherry pick bad events you can try to use it to write off any type of training method without accepting accountability and going like hey like the people who've had these really bad accidents with negative reinforcement were probably using it wrong or the, the people that increase that create shark's mouth horses that are aggressive and pushy and dangerous are probably using it wrong and it goes both ways and it requires people to actually look at things and go like okay like even if I wouldn't personally use this method there are people who can use it correctly and my negative mindset surrounding it is directed at people who use the method improperly and there are some methods that really can't be used properly from the standpoint of being fair to the horse but like I think that like positive reinforcement in general is a lot less dangerous of a mindset to re to promote and reinforce in the horse community because it revolves around the idea of making things more fair and fun and rewarding for the horse whereas people perpetuating punishing training methods like using the patience pole or hitting horses for biting and stuff it isn't taking welfare into account and it also isn't taking into account people's ability to know how to make the pressure or the punishment actually suit what you're trying to do and a lot of people will over punish and use way too much pressure and that's way easier to abuse and it does result in a ton of negative behavioral fallout because it's not like negative reinforcement trained horses or horses who were punished are just like immune to problem behaviors they have lots of them too but people aren't as willing to pick out those problem behaviors to discredit the training as as a whole as they are with other things like positive reinforcement and like I said earlier I think that all stems from insecurity and people not wanting to re like look within themselves and try to find out why they're so uncomfortable or what about this new way of thinking of horses offends them so because if you love horses you really have to sit there and ask yourself why does the discussion of equine welfare and benefiting the lives of horses while still using them for riding and sport, why does that strike a chord in me and make me get defensive and make me want to silence it? If I love horses, why am I offended by the idea of making their lives better? And that's a question that I think people need to look within themselves and ask because it's not going to be the answer you think it is. And if you try to redirect it to like, again, discredit someone for what they're saying rather than actually having an argument, then you're just deflecting. And a lot of us have used that tactic in our growth. And like, like I said, I've been guilty of a lot of the things that I talk about here and I'm readily admitting them now because I think it's important because way too many horse people refuse to admit any flaws or wrongdoing and there's like this showboaty showboaty like invincibility mindset within the horse world where people never want to admit where they've made mistakes and they always want to put the blame on some other thing or on the horse or on a person and it 
results in like no one ever learning how to hold themselves accountable which means that they have more power in continuing to make bad decisions that cause problems in training or negatively impact the horse and then again putting the blame from whatever they cause with that onto someone else and I truly wish that like when I was younger and kind of starting out in the horse world that I had better role models because it would have made all of the difference in my training and care for my horses and it would have allowed me to have better relationships with them and make riding more enjoyable and make me less reactionary and jaded or quick to punish horses if I just had better role models. So like that's what I try to be here through doing this podcast or making my posts online. And like I know that like sometimes I word things very bluntly and it'll come off like I'm just trying to start a fight or that I'm just trying to be insulting. And that's honestly not the case. Like in some ways a lot of my posts are actually like trying to punish me for things that I used to be guilty of and using my past self as the scapegoat for discussing new information. And it's it's something where that's why I think like holding myself accountable is so important because I think people need to know like I've gone through this same journey where you're kind of grappling with what you've been taught and what you knew to be correct and having a ton of stuff that you're now learning refute what you thought was correct. And it's like a very uncomfortable place to be. And it can be very discouraging to try to think of new ways to do things and train things. But one of the best quotes that I've heard surrounding this is that if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything is going to look like a nail. And I think that's the exact mindset that a lot of horse people are trapped in. They can't fathom the idea of a new method like positive reinforcement working correctly because they assume that people are positively reinforcing even bad behaviors of the horse rather than ones that conflict and their lack of understanding of how the method is actually applied is what they use to discredit the method and go that's so stupid I could never use this this these people are so dumb and they must all have poorly behaved horses and the funny thing about this is that like a lot of people will fixate on the idea that anyone who uses food must have a mouthy, poor-behaved horse, but then we see so many people that practice traditional methods, leading their horses around in, like, lip chains, like, nose chains, needing excess equipment just to control them, and it's like, okay, like, who are you to try to discuss whether or not someone's horse is dangerous if you need all these things to handle yours, right? Like, it goes both ways, and, like, creating a food-aggressive horse is also very dangerous, but... At the bare minimum, at least the horse isn't going to be subjected to like painful equipment to be handled for things that could be fixed through training. And I find that a lot of barns still justify doing so. Like, I think it's a weakness to have to always be using rough equipment to keep your horse confined and settled. And I think everyone's goal should be able to have like as little equipment as possible. And also, I think that. Anyone that's like if you go and get your horse and they're wanting to run away from you and they don't want to be caught or they're turning away from you, you need to ask yourself why and you need to work on bettering that aspect of your relationship so that your horse isn't resenting that interaction because a lot of us say like our horses love to be ridden, they love to participate in sport, they love to do this or that and then their behavior doesn't always reflect that love and it's just something we say to make ourselves feel better. And it it can be really hard to counter condition negative behaviors that you created through ways of training that you used for far too long. So that's kind of why I use my accounts as like a cautionary tale for people who don't want to make the same mistakes that I did and people who want to do better. And I think that sharing this is so important for changing the horse world. And I think that more people need to kind of honestly 
refer to their past when they're especially when you're discussing what people might view as radical ideas you need to refer to your past and honestly look within yourself to kind of criticize yourself and talk about your journey to getting to a certain point because then people might perceive you as less of a threat and initially I was very much all about fighting and kind of causing like controversy and just being hyper defensive and it's like a tactic that I learned throughout my life as like a trauma response to a lot of things but it doesn't work with actually teaching people and I think that like just hearing the opinions of others even if you don't want to train the exact same way as them I think it's really useful to talk to people that come from different backgrounds and learn more which is why I like reading and sharing stuff online and interacting with different people and just kind of learning the way people do things because like in the past year I've actually learned quite a lot of stuff about like methods that I never even knew existed many of which were like I would consider cruel or abusive but things that I couldn't even fathom as reality and it's allowed me to kind of learn more and also further understand like any problem horses that I get why they might be the way they are and that's useful in itself even if you don't adopt the methods that you've learned about but anyways one quote that I want to leave you with is from dressage and harmony which is a book by Walter Zettel it's about classical dressage and just developing the horse and he has a lot of really great things to say he's now deceased but like his books are fantastic and while he wasn't really a positive reinforcement trainer the his philosophy surrounding horses is very much about like respecting the horse and being kind to the horse and developing a working partnership with the horse that makes them want to work rather than resent working or punishing them so he very much discouraged like punishment or too much pressure or pushing horses along too fast so this is the quote you may notice that the more experienced the horseman the more strongly he or she believes that careful patient work is necessary all of the great masters have gone through all the mistakes and would like so much to help others avoid them if they thought that beginners should make these mistakes or that there was some benefit to them they would not so uniform and vehemently plead to others to avoid them that that is a really great quote and i think that kind of sums up why I feel the way I do about a lot of things and why I'm so passionate about being like outspoken about these things because I think that's important and this is another quote from the same book in the chapter that's about how the horse learns and this is what he says I compare the horse with a small child if one demanded total obedience from a child in kindergarten he would become frightened and would no longer enjoy going to school it is the same with horses and then the little footnote that is with this one says in starting young horses i always stuck with the thought of how hard it must be for many foals being weaned from the mare after frolicking in the pasture with other young horses for two years he then experiences a tremendous shock when the maternal and herd bonds are broken and he is taken away the young horse is then often forced into a dark van or trailer and is thrown around inside eventually being put in a stall that should be his home for many months or even years it is only because of their trusting and accepting nature that they tolerate this upheaval in their young lives another reason why we should take care to never violate their trust and like i said while this man didn't train with a lot of the science-based like positive reinforcement methods that people are choosing now i think his philosophy is really telling in how he would treat his horses and train them and how much he respects having the good relationship with them and yeah so another quote too where he talks about the nature of the rider 
is he's talking about like developing your horse and teaching them to go into a frame and he says i have known very few riders who do not try to force the horse into a frame with their hands but the biggest enemy to partnership of dressage is impatience and the human nature to dominate other creatures to reach a good partnership the rider must control himself before controlling his horse and this is so true because like for myself in particular i can say that like for a very long time of my riding career i wasn't really in control of my emotions and it caused me to lash out at the horse when I shouldn't have and it didn't make me a better rider it didn't help teach the horse anything more it just created more problems and gave me more reasons to be frustrated with the horse because of their reaction of what I to what I did and now this is another quote I'm going to do a couple more quotes from the same book because this is just about the foundation this is kind of referencing what I talked about earlier about how important it is to try not to make mistakes because fixing the mistakes is always harder than it is to just not make them in the first place so you can never put back what you leave out of a horse's basic training and that which is done wrong at the beginning can never be completely undone you can only make one beginning Therefore, it cannot be said often enough that the initial foundation in training the horse is the most important. And this is something I really feel passionate about, especially as someone that predominantly works with young horses. Um, that's the end of the quote too, sorry. The foundation, the training of the horse is the most important. That was the end of the quote. But yeah, as someone who trains horses professionally and is mostly working with young horses or problem horses or starting horses under saddle, I think that the foundation is so important because it sets the tone for the horse's entire attitude towards training in the future. And it's honestly one of the most unappreciated aspects of horse training, I find, because when you're just putting the foundation on, you're not really doing anything super cool or showboaty with the horse, like jumping big fences or doing upper level dressage movements and whatnot. But the foundation is crucial to what the horse is going to be like in the future. And I often feel like as a trainer, like I love doing what I do, training horses from the ground up and starting horses under saddle because it's just so special to be able to teach them like that and to work with them and watch them adapt and learn new things. It's a very special thing to do. So I wouldn't change it for the world. But what I will say is that I feel less appreciated than a lot of trainers who have upper level competition horses that they're able to do a lot of stuff with and jump big jumps with and kind of do more showboaty exciting things that people will take more pleasure in watching because starting horses when you're doing it correctly is pretty boring because you don't get big exciting reactions you're not getting rearing bucking or like cowboying around and showing how well you can sit through them that stuff really shouldn't happen in the beginning stages of getting horses started under saddle so it's really slow and boring and the horse might finish their first month of training only knowing like walk trot and maybe some canter and they're not going to be going on the bit yet they're not going to be looking super fancy yet necessarily and people don't appreciate it as much because it's less exciting to look at even though it's like a very crucial part of training a horse and even though when you're doing the foundational basics of a horse it doesn't make you less of a rider than anyone that's competing in the upper levels in the grand prix ring and the reason why i reference it is because i've had a lot of people try to criticize and put me down for what i say about horse welfare and spreading equine science knowledge and whatnot based off of the fact that I don't have as much of a show record as other trainers, but a show record is completely irrelevant to what I do. Showing horses does not teach me how to train them from the ground up. It doesn't teach me how to fix problem behaviors and help fix problem horses. It doesn't do any of that stuff. My knowledge of behavior in equine science, however, it does. And 
a lot of the people that we see and like watching at the upper levels, a lot of them don't start their own horses. A lot of them will send their horses to trainers to be started. And said trainers that are doing this aren't likely to be showing at the upper levels all the time because you have to dedicate a fair amount of time to starting horses under saddle at your barn and working on those clients. So I think it really says something about the different skill levels of people because you can be a very good rider to pilot a horse around a meter 60 course and people who are starting horses under saddle might not be able to do that but not everyone can handle problem horses or properly teach a horse to go under saddle and have the patience to do so so it's definitely different skills and anyways the last two quotes that i'm going to do are also related to the foundation so this is the first one Truly the hardest part of good riding is the foundation. One must take enough time. If the foundation is correct, the so-called harder exercises of the upper levels will come easily to the horse. And this really resonates with me because I spent a lot of my riding career trying to take shortcuts. And it resulted in it actually taking way longer for me. Like I tried to take shortcuts with starting Milo over fences and it prolonged how long it took him to learn to jump and be comfortable doing so and even still like he has a level of like anxiety towards new fences that I honestly don't think he would have had to the same extent if I'd done things slower and more properly and that's a big regret I have because like said in one of the previous quotes you can't undo the mistakes that are made initially so he has a reason to be more suspicious of things because of the lack of time that I took And that's something that I really regret. And the only thing you can do with these regrets is like not beat yourself up over them because it is what it is. I didn't know what I know now back then, so I couldn't have applied it. But what I do now is I try to apply what I learned to all the other horses I get to make their lives better and to do a better job with those horses and then look at them and see through them how they've learned better than what I would have been able to do in the past and take some pride in that. And I think that's very important because, yeah, all of us have made mistakes. Any horse person who lies to you about ever having made a mistake or tries to act like they've always applied methods perfectly is honestly lying to you, and it's not genuine to speak like that. Anyways, this is the last quote. At a minimum, it will take four years of training to take a horse to the point where he is doing all of the Grand Prix movements, and another year to bring all these together so he is ready for showing at this level. This is only possible with the best and most experienced riders and most talented horses under the guidance of an expert trainer. Don't think of this as a timetable to be followed. Instead, think of this as an absolute minimum. Anything quicker must involve shortcuts and mistakes. These can seen in poor pace, in poor or pacing walks, open mouths, tongues hanging out, four-beat canter, loss of rhythm, a passage-like trot, and so on. So many horses are ruined by a rush to Grand Prix. The more talented the horse, the more they give and the more they get pushed. Once over the limit, they lose the fun and the brilliance and are quickly soured or even made lame or sick from the stress. And that quote really resonates with me because yeah like that's definitely stuff that I've been guilty of doing in the past like my Arab gelding that I had he was never put together in a proper frame or taught to work properly and that sucked but I didn't know any better because I was just following what I was taught by my trainer and it resulted in him getting a sway back way quicker than what he should have and that was my fault and the fault of the program that he was in and that's something that I just kind of have to deal with and like acknowledge and learn from and hope to not do again and learning more about dressage and how to develop horses on the flat really helps with this mindset and helped me kind of slow things down and start to appreciate the more boring in quotations um aspects of riding that didn't include jumping because 
prior to that, like, after I got out of the Arab circuit and I just wanted to start jumping, I, like, the most exciting riding days were always the jumping days. And it meant that I was kind of just trying to rush to get over fences, which resulted in my horses suffering because of it. And now I've learned to be a lot more patient. I've, like, literally not jumped since, like, Thunderbird with Milo, unless I've jumped on a client horse, I can't remember. And like in previous years that's not something I would have been able to do because I was very much like about the jumping and if I hadn't been so much about jumping I honestly would have been able to do more with him in the future because I wouldn't have rushed the foundation and had it collapse on me in certain occasions and that is something that you kind of like yeah you you live and you learn and like the only way to really learn the hard way is to like screw up and have to go back and be like crap like I really messed it up I wish I didn't do that because initially like a lot of people are just so self-righteous I know I was and it's really hard to come out of that mindset and start to be more vulnerable and honest and that's kind of just what I'm trying to do here and like even with these podcasts I can pretty much guarantee you like in another five to six years I'm sure there's going to be stuff that I have been doing recently that I'll be like oh no I found this better way to do it and this is why I like it better because like the horse world is always adapting we're always learning the more we study horses and the more we learn about their behavior and how they learn, the better we're going to be able to train them. So we're always adjusting and becoming better riders and handlers. And I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of if you're learning. I think it's more shameful to be able to go like, hey, I've literally not grown as a rider or person or adopted any new ideals in years of riding. And I'm stubbornly staying with like what I was taught when I was young even if it's not correct and I'm going to refute science to do so that's more embarrassing I would way rather have personal growth and have people be like oh well you're such a hypocrite you used to say this and be like well it's actually not hypocrisy it's called uh growing and learning with the times like you should be trying to do but anyways yeah so that's kind of the the gist of learning and growing and kind of my thoughts on horse training and the importance of like holding yourself accountable and kind of reflecting on where you might have made mistakes and then even just for any behavior with the horse you kind of need to look at it and go like how does this behavior serve them why are they doing this what would be reinforcing this behavior or what could be the cause behind it because a lot of times we're either accidentally reinforcing a behavior we don't want to see without realizing it because horses are very very perceptive to our body language and movements or we might have poor timing or the horse could be in pain or having something else wrong with it like for example with milo's ulcers he started being super backed off under saddle which is like super super unusual for him and i wasn't really comfortable with riding him through that and kind of pushing him and getting after him even though like i know a lot of people, if I had gone to lessons, would probably want me to take out a whip and kind of make him go. But I wasn't comfortable with it. I felt something was off and I wasn't wasn't having it. And so I decided to get him scoped for ulcers. And when I dropped him off of the vet, I looked at the vet and I was like, honestly, like I would be way more surprised if he didn't have ulcers. He's going to have ulcers. And yeah, sure enough, he did. They were pretty serious, grade three ulcers. And we treated them. He has gotten way better and there's still certain things that I need to counter condition because of the negative association he would have had with tack and like being blanketed because of the ulcers but um it's like it's just one of those things where it's like yeah like I'm glad I looked into it because I could have tried to push him through that whole thing and he would have been bitter and super uncomfortable 
and that's why like I spend so much money on like anytime I have like an inkling that something's wrong I'll do the vet work first before kind of treating it like a behavior issue because I don't want to push them through pain and yeah that's that's a mindset I think that a lot of horse people should adopt and I know it's way harder for people who lease or who um who don't own the horses or riding lesson horses because you can't really control how those horses are cared for or who will get the vet out because it's not your job to pay for it so that's kind of where you're more trapped but this is why you can kind of be more critical of behaviors and be like how does this serve my horse what could possibly be causing it and then even if you can't get the horse necessary vet work you can either decide if it's bad enough that you want to move barns or how you can better the horse's life in the situation that you're in currently and like what you can do as the leaser or the lesson rider to try to make it better for the horse and that's really all you can do because you can't control what like other people do with their horses and that's also why the spread of information is so important and this is why I try to spread the information like predominantly on my own pages like I don't typically go commenting on other people's accounts ever unless they're doing something like horrible or they're soliciting advice and I like I try to do that because if you go onto people's accounts and you're like oh well so and so said this you're wrong your horse is stressed and you're abusing them they're you're not likely to actually have what you're saying hit them and like have them receive it and be listening you're more likely to create a defensive reaction and then as the defensive reaction hits them they're more likely to resent anyone with the same mindsets as you and look for whatever they can to discredit them and refuse to listen so it's not worth it to be like that because I had people do that to me for years and in all honesty the people that were like the most outspoken and loud about things and really like rigid or kind of not nice in how they said things they created this defensive reaction within me and it made my growth as a rider and a learner harder and take longer because I was less willing to like look at anything the people who had been cruel to me and how they stated things I was less willing to look at anything that they said but with that said one of the things I try to do on my accounts is I really make a priority of not giving people who are spreading information that I know to be false based off of what we've researched. I try to not give those people a platform. So if someone's going to come onto my account with like a loud mouth and go, actually, you're wrong and da 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 da, like feeding treats is stupid and this is why, like, I'm going to correct them because, like, you're not, I'm not going to give a platform to people who are only using their voice to try to discredit information that was founded by people that are more educated than the both of us are. And so when people come onto my account and comment these things, they're opening themselves up for the criticism from me by choosing to comment and not choosing to research what they comment first. So this is the occasion where I will more bluntly respond than I might when I'm talking about things on here. But with that said, like, I think anytime you make the choice to comment on someone else's account and, like, say it with your chest, if you've not done research to make sure that you're correct, you deserve whatever is coming to you if they are to correct you and say what they think. And then you can't complain if the information hurts your feelings because it applies to you or how you care for your horses. But anyways... I think one of the most important things that a horse person can do for their horses is hold themselves accountable and care enough about the welfare of their horse that they'll put their ego aside and decide to look into things and potentially educate themselves more on how they can provide their horse with better management, how they can better read their horse's behaviors, and what are some good ways to help a horse learn, especially the ones that get stressed more easily or are more aggressive and defensive.
So anyways, thank you for tuning in to my very rambly, all-over-the-place podcast episode today, and I hope that this gave you some stuff to think about and consider, and I hope that people learn some things from what I say. And I also just wanted to add that I do have a new resources page on my website where I've added a bunch of horse studies and information like basics about behavior and the training quadrants and definitions of certain ta- like terms that people might not be familiar with. And I've also done some pages where you can look at like where I've listed off products that I use and where you can get them. And done recommendations that way so that people have a place to like easily find what I use for like bits, bit lists, like training tools, um, tack and so on and so forth. I've put that all up on my website and then also the, the pages that have basic behavior info and also information for where to go for further resources and some other credible trainers and equestrians that you can follow that put out educational content and yeah, also just like a ton of studies. Like I've probably linked over a hundred studies on the pages there that you can read. There's been studies on like stalls and like stalls versus turnout and information on that. And then also training stuff that compares positive and negative reinforcement, as well as like different natural horsemanship methodologies and how horses respond to it. And then also stuff related to like the growth of horses and how young horses might grow in a stalled situation versus outside. And yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff and I'm still adding to it. And if people have like questions or suggestions for stuff that they would like to see on there they can always let me know and I'm willing to like edit it and add some stuff within reason and do stuff that way so I hope that those pages help people you can let me know what you think if you think that there's a way to make it more user-friendly or easy to read just let me know and I'll work on that but you can go onto my website milestoneequestrian.ca and then there's just a little resources part in the navigation and there's some subtopics within the resources um, link and yeah so you can get that there and then I also have my saddle pads that are like for sale now through Amore Equestrian and you can get them from their website or there's also a link on my website in the shop milestone tab and there's a lot of options of like colors for like dressage or jumping saddle pads and they're really cute and I've tried to price them at a price point that's significantly lower than competitors on the market that are selling pads made from similar materials and similar similar styles um so I've tried to price them lower so that they're more affordable to people who might be on more of a budget and then I also have my merch store on Teespring that's also linked on my website called Milestone Equestrian and there's a lot of really cool and fun horse related designs and I just added a new one that says professional treat dispenser and it's really cute and you can get it on a fanny pack which you could use as a treat pouch and yeah so there's just lots of cool stuff that you can go if you're looking to shop at all and look at like my resources page for stuff that I use and then also of course I have my social medias on Instagram which is at s-d-e-q-u-u-s s-d-equus and then twitter is the same and then my youtube is just my name shelby dennis and i've just uploaded some new stuff to youtube as well um a basic kind of liberty tips and just like a a video on what i did with banksy and milo in their liberty sessions recently and kind of showing off banksy's skills because he did some really cool stuff in that so you can check that out on my youtube channel and then also i'm on facebook if you look up milestone equestrian you can check out my facebook page and i've put more updates there and also like links to like articles and 
and the like. So yeah, let me know what you think. I appreciate all of the love and support on this podcast. And I guess the last thing is to um, plug my Patreon. So if you go to my Patreon account, you can subscribe for as little as a dollar a month and it just helps kind of pay for any expenses associated with the podcast. So eventually getting me a microphone will come from that. And then also it gives you access to exclusive content and early access to some videos and also patron only videos that I up- try to upload at least once a month. So yeah, if you check that out, it's it's great. And you can also get, there's tiers if you want help with training so that you can send videos and get kind of video critiques or do training consults over the phone. There's um, some tiers for that. So that would be really a great way to support the podcast. Like even honestly, a dollar a month is like huge because it eventually adds up. And then that helps me because I can no longer run ads on here because Anchor is just like not having it. So anyways, yeah, so those are kind of the options of where to follow me and where to find me. And again, I appreciate all the support and I hope you all learned something from this and I promise I'll try to do podcasts more regularly than what I've been doing. Thank you for watching, listening. I mean, this isn't a video. Whoops.